please take out your Bibles and turn in your Old Testaments to Ezra while I hastily rewrite my sermon since Pastor Nate just preached it for me. Amen. Amen. I actually did not um, have anything from Ephesians 2 on the mind, but we may get back there after all because it's true and good, these spiritual truths. And so when we see them all over the place, it's because the Spirit brings to our attention the truth of his word. So amen to that. Our passage today is Ezra chapter 6, verses 13 through 22, which take us to the end of this chapter. And as a reminder, Ezra chapters 1 through 6 kind of make up a section, the theme of rebuilding of God's temple. So we are here at the end of this first portion of Ezra, and we are going to see the temple rebuilt, as Pastor Nate indicated, as even said in Ephesians 2. The next half of Ezra is going to be about the rebuilding of God's people. And I think we're pretty well educated at this point on the background of the passage, as Brother Sam has been my litmus test here, but I can't help myself, just a few comments. The Israelites were sent into exile because they disobeyed the Lord. That was in our Old Testament reading this morning, actually, necromancy and sorcery and enchantment and passing of children through fire. You can read how this happens, actually, in 2 Kings 21. Manasseh does each and every one of those things, and the Lord is very angry with the Israelites, and as he promised, they go to Babylon for 70 years. But he's faithful, and he keeps his promises, and after 70 years, they're returned to the land. They are returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the themes that we've been tracing in Ezra, Ezra 1.1 talks about the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. That's something about biblical inspiration, isn't it? And that it would be fulfilled is something about interpretation and that he stirs up the heart of the king of Cyrus is something of the influence the Lord has over his creation. And then in Ezra 1 and 2, we see a picture of God's people as they're being prepared to enter his presence and worship. Ezra chapter 3, talk about our unity in Christ, our unity together, the communion of saints in this age and the age to come. And this age in Ezra 4 is what? Is an age of living in God's two kingdoms, in God's two kingdoms. And in Ezra 5, when enter into the scene Haggai and Zechariah, we see something of the strength we need for today. Remember, Haggai whips him into shape. And the bright hope for tomorrow, especially highlighting the eschatological viewpoints of Zechariah and the future to come. Last Lord's Day, as we traced the themes of the Lord being faithful to the Israelites and accomplishing his task regardless of opposition, we said the Lord will accomplish his work. So what is our passage this morning in Ezra 6? Our theme is one perfect life. One perfect life. Here we are now watching as the Israelites emerge from being a geopolitical people to one of primarily being a religious people. And as we've been saying, we see the church slowly emerging in the Old Testament. Our three points this morning are completion, dedication, and remembrance. Completion, dedication, and remembrance. And now on to point one, which is uh, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says to us here. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, 
Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. If you recall what happens just prior to this, the Jews are stirred up by Haggai and Zechariah and start building the temple again. And they're faced with opposition once again by the eyes of the king, the local governors, and a letter is written, and they wait. They say, we're not going to stop building until we hear from the king. And the king actually backs them up. He searches the archives and he sees that indeed they did have permission. So the decree of Darius in uh, the, the prior passage says, allow them the work of building the temple. So here we are, it says, then... Then what? Then after the king sent word back and the king's eyes returned, the enemies of the Lord sort of became like friends to the Israelites. Tatani and Shetherbozani did with diligence that which Darius had ordered. In Ezra 6, 8, here's what he ordered. I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The tattlers, by the way, are being told by the king, huh, not only am I allowing them to do the project, but here's what I expect of you, Tatani and Shether Bozani. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed you will give to them. So these king-fearing men did with diligence what Darius had ordered. And the elders of the Jews... Zerubbabel the governor and Jeshua the priest, they prospered. It says they prospered in the building of it. And see, how did they prosper? They prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. If you're inclined to study this book a little bit more on your own, I'd encourage you to read through it with Haggai alongside of it at this point. Because if you recall, there's four sermons in Haggai. The first one is, how dare you live in a house with paneled walls while the temple lies in ruins? The second one is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The third one actually is, remember who you were. Remember what it was like when you broke the covenant. And the king is coming. So they are prospering under this message. This is the message that Haggai is giving them. And they're encouraged through the preaching of the word of God. And by the way, this is the God of heaven and earth that is encouraging them. And his eye is on the Jews, if you recall some of our points from before. And so what do they do? They finish the building. It says it twice. They finished the building and this house was finished. And how did they finish it? They finished it by the decree of God, by the decree of God. Our confession, uh, um, the second part of our confession, paragraph two, which is on the God's decree, chapter two of, uh, excuse me, chapter three of God's decree, it's, uh, who's listed first, by the way. In the Ezra, it says, by God's decree, oh, and by, Sari, by Cyrus, and by Darius, and by Artaxerxes. Well, is it really by those men ultimately? Because it says in Ezra 1.1, 1, 1, 
that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. That's why he made the decree in the first place. That's why we can affirm that they did this by the decree of God. And what is the decree of God? God has decreed in himself, it says in chapter 3 of our confession, paragraph 1, from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things. He has decreed all things, whatsoever comes to pass. So, of course, we can affirm here that they finish the building of the house of God, and they do so by God's decree, which is eternal, perfect, unchanging. It's a sure guarantee. And what do they do? They complete the work. In the NASB, it says that the house was uh, completed. In the ESV, it says finished. Synonyms might be accomplished, achieved, culminated, finalized, fulfilled, realized. Point one is completion. Completion carries with it a sense of finality. It is completed. The house of the Lord is completed. And not only is it completed, but if something is complete, it is filled up. You could say full, satisfied, or done. Our Lord, in being the chief cornerstone of the temple, declares what? When he offers himself up. It is finished. It is finished. It is complete. When he once and for all completed the work of redemption and offered himself on the cross, he finished the work. Last week, our headline, our theme was, the Lord will accomplish his work. Here we see he has accomplished his work. The law was fully satisfied, filled up, you might say, and the Lord finished the work. Please turn, if you can, with me to Hebrews chapter 9, which in and of itself deserves probably a year's worth of exposition and sermons. We're going to touch just briefly on it. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, describe the tabernacle, Israel's first temple. And it gives an explanation for a curtain which separates the outer parts from the inner parts, the holy place. It talks about the silver and gold of the vessels. And it, it gives you an indication that the priests, after making detailed preparations, are allowed to go into the first section, but only once per year does the high priest go into the second section. And by the way, they do this over and over and over again. Why? Because it was never a fully satisfying work that they did. It was incomplete. It was not filled up, you might say. But, 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 go to verse 11. Hebrews 9.11, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the greater and more perfect temple, not made with hands, the temple we're reading about in Ezra was made with hands, when the perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, when he enters, he enters once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When the Lord does his work, he does it once and for all. That's why he can say it is finished, it is eternal, it is unchanging, it is complete. Skip to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things. Oh, hold on a minute. What are we reading about in Ezra? Something that is a copy of the true thing. This is indicating that we need to look forward when we're in our Old Testament, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's in the Holy of Holies on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself 
repeatedly. As the high priest who has to enter the holy places every year with blood not his own. He enters with the blood of bull and goats and has to do it over and over and over again. That's not the way our Lord offers his sacrifice. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when our Lord offers his sacrifice, it is finished and it is a complete work. The spiritual temple is complete. And in finishing the work of the heavenly temple, he became what? Pastor Perkins read it in Ephesians 2. It's in a few other passages we'll turn to in a minute. He became the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone of a building? It's the first stone laid in the structure. Why do we need one stone above all the other stones? One stone is laid first of which every other stone references back to. This one tells me which way to go in this direction and this edge of the cornerstone which way to go into that direction. The cornerstone also marks the geographical location of the building. Where is the building oriented towards? This is the cornerstone of a building. A cornerstone's load-bearing. It bears the weight of the structure and gives the building its strength and integrity. So we're reading about a physical temple, which points us to a spiritual temple. The Lord is the spiritual cornerstone of our spiritual temple. He is the reference, location, direction, orientation, strength, integrity, guide, model, cause, and end of the church. Of which, by the way, we are like living stones. We are being joined with him and built up in him. Turn, if you can, to 1 Peter, just a little past Hebrews. In 1 Peter verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, As you come to him, him, a living stone, a living stone. He's the cornerstone of this building. He's a living stone. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and preference. As you come to him, it goes on in verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So when we read in the Old Testament the temple being complete, we look towards the spiritual temple of which Christ is the foundation and the cornerstone and of which we are like living stones. Living, not dead. You think about taking out a heart of stone and getting a heart of flesh. We are living stones in this building to be a holy priesthood. Later we'll talk about spiritual sacrifices. Turn again with me as we flip through our New Testaments for a minute to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Very, very important verses, I think, to help us understand something of how the New Testament uses the Old Testament temple imagery. For in him, in who? In Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Whoa. Fullness of deity dwells in his body. His body is the temple. He says, if you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. Christ's body is the temple. We talked about this in the creed earlier. The whole fullness of deity is in his temple. So what does it say in verse 10? And you have been filled in him. And who is the head of all rule and authority? We are filled in Christ because we are living stones in the temple of the Lord on top of the cornerstone. Colossians 2.9 shows us that 
Christ dwells fully within his temple. Why is this Old Testament imagery? Well, I'm going to do my best to not preach all of Pastor Nate's sermons for him, but let's just briefly go to the very last verses of Exodus and give away the ending of what he's probably going to spend a couple of years on. Do payback, perhaps, for his Ephesians comments earlier. Exodus 40, verse 34. At the end of the matter, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I think this is a hermeneutical key to understand your Old Testament and your New Testament, all of your scriptures. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. So when we're in Colossians and it says the whole fullness of deity dwells with him, that is a direct allusion to Exodus where the fullness of God's deity dwelt in the tabernacle. But now he dwells in temples not made by human hands. And we are being made complete in him as living stones. And that's why it says, in us the whole fullness of deity, um, and in us we are being filled in him, because in him the whole fullness of deity is. How much better our reality that Christ, the cornerstone of the spiritual temple, works through us. He works through us. Our Lord Jesus is the temple, and we are like living stones being built in him. So the temple is completed in Ezra 6. Our next section, point two, dedication, verses 16, 17, and 18. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So after the temple is complete, they dedicate it to the Lord. You could, if you'd like, you can go at some point in 1 Kings 8 and you can see about the first temple made of stones at least, Solomon's temple being dedicated. But here they offer a celebration and that celebration is one of dedication. And they offer bulls, rams, and limbs as sin offerings and goats. And they set the priests who are making intercession for the people. What is intercession? To go in between. They're praying for the people and all of the Levites who are the attendants of the people of the temple in their divisions for the service of God. And the temple is dedicated. Dedication, adherence, allegiance, commitment, devotion, devotedness, single-mindedness, wholeheartedness. The temple is dedicated. And at the dedication, it's like a ceremony. And what do you do at the ceremony of something you're dedicating? You do the things you want that element to exhibit. You role model what you want the use of the thing to be for. You dedicate it by role modeling its future use. And they dedicate it by offering sacrifices and by offering praises because that is what the temple is for. They do it in a very ceremonial fashion. We are dedicating this temple to God and we want it to be a place of sacrifice, sanctification, purification, and worship. So in this ceremonial act of dedication, we're going to do those things, and in a grand way. 
to illustrate what it is we are dedicating the temple to. I have a little note scribbled here. Like a wedding, you can imagine the ways in which a wedding is like a dedication to the union. You exhibit and role model in front of your friends and family the things that you hope to be. You hope it to be one of honor and dedication to the Lord. You have a pastor hopefully there helping to administrate this wedding. It is a dedication ceremony of the future life of that wedding. That is what is happening here. It's a dedication ceremony. This temple made by the decree of God, made by human hands, out of stones by the way, is to be a place where the priests intercede on our behalf and they sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats so those animals can cover us for a time and we can maybe seem to pacify God but for a brief amount of time and worship him. So because that's what this temple is for, we dedicate this temple. Well, if the temple made of stones points us to a spiritual temple and the ceremonial act of dedicating that temple of stones, does that point us towards something? I think it does. I think it points us towards Christ's dedication. Christ, in the taking to himself of humanity, did dedicate himself to the keeping of the law. And in offering himself, he fully satisfied the justice of God. Um, Again, in our confession, if you have it handy, it's in our hymnals, by the way. If not, you can listen along. Our confession in chapter 8, which is on Christ the mediator. Paragraph 4 and 5. This office... The office of Redeemer, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, that he might discharge he who was made under the law. And he did perfectly fulfill it. And he underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body was crucified, here's Apostles' Creed language, and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, bodily resurrection, with which he also ascended to heaven. Paragraph 5 says the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God. You see something of our Lord's dedication to the work that was set before him, his perfect obedience. Why do we sing, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord? Because he was faithful, and he did what he set out to do in perfect dedication, a dedicated life in submission to the Father. His life, which inaugurates redemption, is like a protracted ceremony of illustration and fulfillment. You could think of his life as a dedication to those things. So if our Lord does it, do we have an obligation to dedicate ourselves? If Christ is the living stone, the cornerstone, and if he's the cornerstone, then we're like living stones. And if he's the perfect sacrifice, if he suffered, then are we to offer ourselves somehow as sacrifices? I'm not a bull or a goat. I'm not a perfect, righteous God-man that can satisfy anything. How can I be a sacrifice? What is the Christian's dedication? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If our Lord offers himself in body and truly died, we, by God's mercy, because we're not under the old covenant, we're under the covenant of grace, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And it says that's our spiritual worship. That's our dedication. Our worship is to offer our bodies as sacrifices, but not like bulls and goats, which are but temporary appeasements to the law. And not like Christ Jesus in the sense that he's the most perfect sacrifice made once and for all and who truly died and rose again. No, because we're in Christ, we are living sacrifices. We who are being filled up and made complete, we offer a dedication to our Lord. What does that look like? Matthew 16, 24 says it looks like self-denial. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would try to save his own life would lose it. That's self-righteousness. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Self-denial is dying to self. And dying to self is the Christian's living sacrifice. 1 Peter 2, 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, exile language coming through again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Self-denial is abstaining from the desires of the flesh. Self-denial, your living sacrifice, is to mortify sin. Mortify is to kill, to make it dead. Kill it. Does it say that in scripture? It does in Romans 8. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. For if I live, I will die. If you live according to your flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. By the way, there's a, a very famous Puritan book called The Mortification of Sin. Mortify is to kill, to make dead. An entire book which expounds that one verse. That one verse. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To be a living sacrifice, the Christian dedicated life is one of self-denial. Putting off of sin. Well, if I put off sin, what do I have left? Putting on Christ and attending to worship in faith. The passage in 1 Peter 2 that talked about the cornerstones. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our confession talks about this in Of Good Works. It's only in Christ. Only in Christ. But there is a living sacrifice that we make as our Christian dedication. We deny ourselves and we accept our Lord. That's the opposite of denying is accepting. We turn away from sin and toward Christ. And to turn toward Christ is to do what? Is attend the means of grace. 
Come to the fellowship and worship. Worship him. Put on Christ by worshiping him in spirit and truth and participating in the communion of saints. That's your dedication. What does it say in the Heidelberg Catechism? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. I am not my own. That's a living sacrifice. But belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Completion. It's completed because he's fully paid for it. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's our dedication, our living sacrifice, is to make spiritual sacrifices. We put to death on the altar our old self, and we mortify the sin in our life, and we do that not by our own hands, but by the Spirit. We do that by the Spirit, and that is our dedication. Our third point is remembrance. The verses 19 to the end of the chapter, we're back in Ezra now. Remembrance. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. They celebrated the Passover. This is one month after the dedication. The priests and the Levites purified themselves and slaughtered the Passover lamb. Who did they do it for? For the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. We know the story of the Passover, I hope. If you don't, see me after class. And I'm going to save for Nate, I think, a further unpacking of that as he kicks off Ezra next week. But see the pattern here. The Lord completes the work. He finishes the work on the temple. And in response, they make a dedication. And then after they make the dedication, what do they do? They remember. They remember. They remember that the angel of death went swiftly, killing all of the firstborn. That's what happened during the Passover. As the Israelites were being drawn out of their first exile. But because of the blood of a lamb, death passed over the Israelites. And in obedience to the Lord, they remembered. They remembered. This is, by the way, our Christian life on display. Our Lord has completed his work. He has once for all, as we read in Hebrews 9, made purification for sins. He has saved us. He is saving us. And he will save us. 
So we offer ourselves in dedication as living sacrifices, and we remember. We remember. We look back to the one perfect sacrifice of our Lord, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world. Remember him. Because we have been washed white as snow by his redeeming blood, the angel of death passes us over. As we says in Revelation that the saints in heaven are under the altar, protected, as the Israelites were under their doorframe with the blood of a lamb covering them. We have been washed white as snow. So we remember our Lord as often as we gather, and we partake of a greater Passover in the Lord's table, right? The Christian life is one of remembering. What else do we remember? We remember who we once were. It says in Colossians 1, we have been called out of the domain of darkness. That's exile language, to be in the domain of darkness, and have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. He, the God who in the beginning made heavens and earth, remember, it's that same God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go read what he did for them. It is that same God we remember. The same God of Moses from the burning bush. It's I am. It is this God we proclaim when we gather. We remember who we once were. Not to dwell on the darkness, but be reminded that we who were once not a people are now a people. That's why we're united in Christ. And we have the communion of saints because we are a community. We are a people because the Lord chose us. The Christian life is one of remembrance. Here's from not what my hands have done, verse 4. I praise the God of grace. I trust him. By the way, the hymns are the public theology of the church. If you've not heard me say that, I stole that from somebody, but I'm more and more convinced of it. Put the hymnal right up on your shelf with your Bible and your confessions and creeds. The hymnal teaches us much. So we would do well to remember the words of these carefully chosen and written hymns. I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light. My Lord has saved my life. Remember, my Lord has saved my life. And freely pardon gives. It's completed. Completed. I love because he first loved me. I love him as a living sacrifice, and I dedicate myself to him because he first loved me. I live because he lives. The Christian life is one of remembering, and we remember the one perfect life, Jesus Christ, who has the fullness of deity dwelling in his body and is the spiritual temple. He is complete. He is complete. And he is faithful to us. I have a series of questions that you will answer in your heads most likely. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you know, though, that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Yes, we know that. Do you wish that you could see it all made new right now, today? We do. Is all creation growing? It says in Romans 8, it's like the birth pangs. Is all creation groaning? It is is a new creation coming. It is. Is the glory of the Lord, is it the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? That's temple language. The light of God 
enters the temple in Exodus 40 and fills it. How much more now does he fill his spiritual temple? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is it good to be reminded of this? Yes, it is. It is. I need to remember. I do. Will you remind me? Please. When you see me, stick around for five minutes and you'll see me in one of these states. Distress, frustration, worry, other things I don't feel like admitting to at the moment. When you see me in that state, will you remind me that the Lord has completed his work once and for all? And I'm a living stone in his temple. Will you help me to remember, brothers and sisters? And will you encourage me to remain dedicated as a living sacrifice? Will you encourage me to offer spiritual sacrifices? And can I remind you? Can I remind you? Here's the greatest remembrance of all. Is that here, I'm not trying to give away the communion liturgy, but the table of the Lord is prepared for us. And we do this how? in remembrance of him. It's a reminder of his completed work, his once and for all sacrifice. He alone, our Lord, was found worthy, the spotless lamb. And upon his death, he earned life for you and for me. Can I remind you of this? And will you remember and remind me? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Not I, Lord. Is anyone whole? No, I'm broken. I feel broken. Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah, he can. He conquered the grave. Death couldn't hold him back. Death. By the way, our greatest enemy is death. Not to our Lord. No, he's victorious even over death. He conquered the grave. Remember, he was David's root and the lamb who died. To do what? To ransom the slave. Raise your hand if that's you. He died for me. I remember and proclaim. Will you remind me? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of what? All blessing and honor and glory. Indeed, he is, because he's the one perfect life. He's the one perfect life, the living stone, the sacrifice who lives, and the living word. It is he who gives us all that we need, sustains and maintains us as Christians. That is the one perfect life. Amen to our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit, we praise you, Lord, because you are worthy and mighty and awesome and deserving of all praise, Lord. And when we fail to praise you as we should, the Holy Spirit, we ask that you offer up for us prayers of utterance. And Jesus, thank you for being our mediator, our redeemer, precious, precious Lamb of God. Continue to build us up, Lord, build our faith build our trust in you. Give us a love of the brethren. Help us to remember, Lord. Help us to remember the sacrifices. Help us to look back in our lives and remember all the ways that you have carried us through so that we can trust that you will keep carrying us through. And until then, we ask you to help us be strong. Be strong in you, Lord. 
Help us to be strong. And come soon, Lord, so that we can see it all made new. You who are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. It is to you that we pray, and it's to you that we hope. In Jesus' name, amen.